In today's shear, we will begin a discussion of the topic of free will in Jewish philosophy. The Rambam mentions in the fifth parak of Hilchot Shuvah that in his days there was much debate within the Jewish community around the issue of whether human beings have free will to choose between good and evil or not. He even implies that most philosophically unsophisticated Jews of his time held that we do not have free will and all of our actions are decreed by Hashem. The Rambam, however, was of the opinion that as he opens the fifth parak of Hilchot Shuvah, Rishut Lechol Adam Nitunah that every human being has free will whether to become a tzaddik and choose the path of good or become a rasha and choose to do evil. This is the opinion of probably 99% of Jewish philosophers throughout the ages. In today's year, we will examine this majority opinion, which believes that each of us has free will to choose between good and evil, and in next week's year, we will move on to analyze the minority opinion, which dissents. Why do most Jewish philosophers throughout the ages believe that we have free will? The Rambam here, and in greater length, Rav Sadyagon, in his Sefer Emunot Videot, Ma'amar Dalid, list four reasons why we believe we have free will. One reason, which is not necessarily connected to religion, is that we feel that we are free. Right now, I am holding a pen. I feel that I can choose whether to drop the pen on the floor or to remain grasping it. In five minutes, I know that I can choose on my own whether to go eat a cheeseburger or not to eat a cheeseburger. So our experience teaches us that we have free will. The second argument, which is a specifically religious argument for free will, is that we, we believe in reward and punishment. Hashem rewards us if we do mitzvot and punishes us for averot. We also believe that God is just. As the Chumash tells us, Avraham Avinu pointed out in Parshat Vayera. So if God is just and He rewards and punishes us for our actions, then we must have free will. Because if someone forced me to do Mitzvot or Avi wrote, specifically, against my will, I was forced to eat a cheeseburger, it would not be fair of Hashem to punish me for doing so. Therefore, the fact that Hashem rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked proves that we must have free will, and therefore it is just and fair for Hashem to reward and punish us. The third argument Rav Sadyagon and other Rishonim bring is from the language of the Torah. 
The Torah commands us, do this, don't do that. It only makes sense to command someone if they have free will to listen to the commandment. I can't command you, flap your wings and fly like a bird, because you have no choice in the matter. You can't do it. And I can't command you to breathe, because you can't not do it. I can only command you to do something which you can choose to do or refrain from doing. Particularly, the Torah exhorts us with what we call musr. Choose the right path, Hashem tells us. Do the right thing. The fact that Hashem tells us, gives us this musr, and encourages us to make the right choice, clearly implies that it's up to us to choose. The fourth reason, which is the most, perhaps, direct and specific, is from the Torah Shabal Peh, from the words of Chazal. In Brachot, Masechet Brachot, Daf Lamed Gimel Bet, Amr Rabbi Hanina, Hakol Bidei Shemayim Chutz Miyurat Shemayim. Everything is in the hands of, Hash- of heaven. Hashem controls the entire world, except for whether or not we fear Him. God controls the world. He makes it rain or makes it not rain. He controls everything, except for one thing, whether we listen to Him or not. So, the Gemara says explicitly that the one thing which God leaves up to, uh, up to us is whether we do mitzvot or wrote, therefore proving that we have free will. For these four reasons, almost all Jewish philosophers agree that we freely choose whether to do mitzvot or averot. However, a number of philosophical objections have been raised to this position. Some object, particularly many scientists in the present era, on scientific grounds. After all, if Newtonian physics and its later uh, developments prove that everything has a cause, every physical action is caused by something, then our brains are physical machines which decide to do something based on the physical firing of synapses or however exactly they work inside. So there must be a cause, and if everything is caused then something about the structure of our brains or the experiences we have in the world must cause us to do things, and therefore we cannot choose freely. This is a matter of scientific debate. Uh, I'm not an expert in science, but quantum mechanics teaches us that certain things can be attributed to scientific causes, other things cannot be attributed to scientific causes, so we'll leave the scientific realm to the scientists, see what they determine in the next couple of decades uh, or centuries, and limit ourselves to purely philosophical objections. One philosophical objection, which the Rambam mentions in the fifth paragraph of the Chot is from the argument from divine omnipotence. If God, in fact, controls the whole world, if he is all-powerful, then everything is up to God. So how can I decide to do something which is against God's will? If God wants me to eat a cheeseburger, then I must. And if he doesn't want me to, then I can't. So how is there room for free will if God is all-powerful and controls everything in the world? This objection 
is relatively simple to parry. The Rambam, and in his wake, or even anticipating him, Rav Sajigolin and many Rishonim and Achronim point out that God is all-powerful, but one of the ways of exercising power is to give that power over to someone else. A king might be an all-powerful ruler over his empire. One of the ways he uses that power is by appointing ministers and having them decide on his behalf. The king does this because there aren't enough hours in the day for him to control every detail of his kingdom. God, of course, is all-powerful. He could control everything, but he can also choose to delegate that power to others. And therefore, the Raman tells us that God chose to delegate the power to choose between good and evil, between mitzvot and avirot, to human beings because he wanted us to have free will. He wanted, for whatever reason, in his divine plan for the world, he didn't want to merely create mineral, vegetable, animal, and angels. He wanted to create human beings. And he wanted them to decide on their own whether to do the right thing or the wrong thing. So he delegated that power to us. And therefore, there is no contradiction to the premise of divine omnipotence if we assume that we are free will, because God used his infinite power to delegate to us the power to choose whether or not to do the right thing. A a second, more thorny philosophical objection the Rambam raises is the famous argument from divine omniscience. Not only is God all-powerful, but God is all-knowing. After all, if God is perfect, then part of perfection is knowing everything. So if God knows everything, including the future, then he knows what we are going to do before we do it. And if he knows what we are going to do before we do it, then how can we freely choose? As the Rambam asks, Shema Tomar v'aloa Kodesh Baruch Hu yodea kol ma she'iyeh v'kodem sh'iyeh 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 Right, the Raman tells us, let's say tomorrow morning, I can wake up in the morning and daven shachrit, or eat a cheeseburger. So, does God know what I'm going to do? Let's say God knows I'm going to daven shachrit. Then I have to daven shachrit, because God can't be wrong, so I have no free will. And if God knows I'm going to skip shachrit and feast on a cheeseburger instead, then I have to skip shachrit and eat the cheeseburger because God's knowledge can't be wrong. Therefore, if, before the creation of the world, God knew what every human being would do every minute of his or her life, then there is no room for free will, because we have no choice but to do that which Hashem knew in advance we would do, because God can't be wrong. There are three different answers in the philosophical literature to defend the doctrine of Bechirach of Shit, of free will, against this objection. One more radical answer 
is that in fact God does not know what we will do. That solves the problem quite handily, because if God doesn't know what I'll do tomorrow, then I certainly have free choice to choose to do the right thing or the wrong thing tomorrow. However, this is a little radical, because if God's perfect, then he should know everything. There are two ways of reconciling God's perfection with the fact that he may not know what I'm going to do tomorrow. Some philosophers claim that lack of knowledge of indeterminate events in the future is not a lack of perfection, because if something hasn't happened yet, then not knowing it is not a lack of perfection. Being all-knowing means knowing all there is to know, and that which hasn't happened yet doesn't exist, and is not part of all there is to know. Rashi, in the very first Amr of Masechet Sota, seems to imply this approach, that God knows everything that we have done, and that we are doing, but not necessarily everything that we will do. There's much debate in the Achronim as to whether this is the correct interpretation of Rashi's words, or the incorrect interpretation. But the simplest interpretation of Rashi in the beginning of Sota is that God knows what we have done. That's how he rewards and punishes us. God knows what we are doing, but he doesn't know what we will do, because since it hasn't been determined yet, it is not there to be known. And God knows everything there is to be known, which includes the past and the present, and those things which are deterministic, which are determined by physical laws that will happen in the future. But he doesn't know our free choices that haven't been made yet, because they are not yet there to be known. The Ralbag, the uh, perhaps known to us from the pages of the Mikroot Kedolot on Neviim Uktuvim, in his Sefer, Milchamot Hashem, Book 3, Chapter 4, <clears throat> takes this a significant step further and gives the quite radical answer that God doesn't know the individual actions of human beings at all. The Rabbach says that God knows everything. Everything in terms of general knowledge. He knows what a human being is. He knows how human beings work. He knows all the laws of physics and psychology and chemistry and any other branch of knowledge we can or can't imagine. God knows all the general laws. But he doesn't know specific instances. God knows everything about a cow, but doesn't know anything about any particular cows. And God knows all about human beings, but doesn't know whether any particular human being did a mitzvah today or did an avera today. <clears throat> the Ralbag says that therefore Hashem's knowledge is limited to those things determined by laws. In a word, those events which are deterministic. But isn't God's knowledge perfect? The Ralbag tells us that, yes, a perfect knowledge knows perfectly all the laws of the universe and all those things that are determined 
by regular laws. But he doesn't deign, he doesn't descend, he doesn't care to know all the meaningless details of what every particular person did at every particular time and place. Those are beneath God's attention. As a matter of fact, the Ralbag says that it would be an imperfection in God were him to distract himself, as it were, with knowledge of the particular things that you and I do at every moment. The perfection of God is that he knows the ultimate truths of the universe, the eternal truths of the universe, and not the ephemeral, transient actions that happen at a particular time and place. This is quite the radical doctrine, and does not fit with what we and most Jews over the millennia consider a religious orientation. Already in his days, most Jewish philosophers considered the Ralbag a bit too Aristotelian. Some of them perhaps were even harsher in their criticism than that. <clears throat> because the Ralbag's philosophy takes away the element of personal relationship between God and man, between Hashem and myself, that most of us consider so essential to the religious worldview and to a religious life. So the Ralbag, by positing that God knows generalities, God knows eternal laws, God knows eternal truths, but doesn't bother to know particulars, solve the problem quite handily. If God does not know at all what actions I choose to do, then of course I can have free will. But the cost of that solution is higher than most of us would be willing to pay. And mainstream Jewish philosophy has utterly rejected the Aristotelian approach of the Ralbag and assumes, like the simple reading of Tanakh, and Chazal would imply that God, in fact, has a relationship with each and every one of us, and perhaps we don't understand why God, so transcendent and perfect, would bother to know, to concern himself, to care about the actions of me or you. But we believe that he does so. And that's exactly what makes him great. The Gemara says, Wherever we find the Tanakh discussing God's greatness, it discusses his humility as well. And that humility, as it were, expresses itself in the personal relationship that each of us has, that each of us human beings has with God himself. And therefore... We believe that God certainly knows, care and cares very much whether I make the right choices or the wrong choices. And most Jewish philosophers rejected the Ralbag's answer, which is the first answer we have mentioned to solving the contradiction between divine omniscience, God knowing everything and free will. And we then move on to the second answer, which is that of the Rambam. The Rambam gives an answer which is somewhat difficult to understand. Back in Hilchot Shuvah, Perak Hay, the Rambam tells us 
דש את תשובת שאלה זו ארוכה מארץ מידה ורחבה מן הים. Realize that the answer to this question is broader than the earth and wider than the sea. And many very difficult but important philosophical concepts depend on this. But he tells us one thing. He already explained elsewhere in the second paragraph of the Torah God doesn't have a knowledge other than Him, like my knowledge is something other than myself. God and His knowledge are the same. My knowledge, say my knowledge of mathematics, is something additional to me. I used to not know mathematics. I could not know mathematics. And I happen to have a knowledge of mathematics. That's an additional attribute. But God is one, and the Ramam took the idea of monotheism quite seriously. God is one to the extent that he doesn't have anything. He doesn't have emotions. He doesn't have body parts. He doesn't have mercy. He doesn't have wisdom. He just is. He is one. If God is all-knowing, that's not because God has knowledge. It's just part of being God. And therefore, the Ramam says that anything which we... God has, quote-unquote, is not the same as the human version that we're familiar with. When God has mercy, it's not similar to me or you having mercy. Because our mercy is something we added to ourselves. God is one. He doesn't add anything. God is just, is just God. And we describe it as merciful because that's how it comes across to us. But he's just the all-perfect God. When we say God has knowledge of whether I ate a cheeseburger today. That's not like your, yours or my knowledge of whether what someone ate for lunch today. Because that knowledge is something we added to ourselves. But God can't add anything to himself. He's one, he's perfect. It's just part of being God is that he has what we call omniscience. He knows everything. But the Raman therefore says that just as we can't understand the nature of God, we can't understand what it means that God knows. And since we can't understand what it means that God knows, then we don't know what it means that God knows what I will do. And if we don't know what it means that God knows what I will do, then we can't possibly figure out the nature of this conundrum and we just have to believe that although God knows what I will do, I still have free will. The Ravid, in his Hasaga, his criticism of the Rambam here, is very upset with the Rambam. He says, look, you want to bring up philosophical problems and solve them? Fine. Okay. No, there's room for that. I'm not the biggest philosopher in the world, says the Ravid. But if you want to be a philosopher, fine, bring up questions and give answers. But if you bring up philosophical questions and then don't answer them, then we'd have been better off just uh, keeping quiet in the first place, says the Raiva to the Rambam. You brought up this big philosophical question. If God knows what we're going to do before we do it, how can we have free will? We have to do what God knew we would do. And you didn't give an adequate solution. You just said, oh, well, we don't understand these things. So you should have just not brought up the issue in the first place. I think that the Rambam thought it was worthwhile asking this question and giving the solution anyway uh, because the Rambam's answer was perhaps 
a little more sophisticated than the Ravid gave him credit for. The Rabbim's answer, technically, philosophically, is 100% valid. And is, perhaps not intuitively, but philosophically, the best answer we can get to this question. The Rabbim's are the opinion, in the more Nevuchim, that you can't really describe God. Because all the human words we have for describing things are based on our human physical world, where there are additional qualities that people or things have. If I am angry, then there's me, and then I also added some anger to myself. If I know the history of England, there's me, and I also put the history of England into my brain. God, for the Rambam, is really one. Not just there's one God and not two. There's one God and not two parts of God. The Rambam took this very, very seriously. God can't have a body, because then there would be two parts to God. And no human word could be used to describe God, because then we'd be adding another part and to God, and there would now be two gods. Anyone who really believes that a human word of description applies to God is a polytheist, according to the Rambam. If God is really wise, the way a sage is wise, then there's God, and then there's God's wisdom, and there are two parts of God, and all of a sudden, we've become polytheists. So the Rambam therefore believes, as he explains in the Mornevuchim, that any word we use to describe God doesn't really mean what that word means when we use it in regular human discourse. And we can't really describe God. The ultimate knowledge of God, according to the Rambam, is realizing that he transcends any of our descriptions. If so, then any word we use to describe God doesn't really mean anything. It just means it sort of looks a little similar to the regular meaning of the word. If we say God is merciful, it means he does things that look similar to us, to what merciful people do. But we don't really mean that God is merciful. So if God is omniscient, if God is all-knowing, that means to us he is, exists, and acts in a way that to us looks a little similar to the way someone or some being would act if they knew everything. But we don't really mean anything by the word. Any word we use to describe God really has no meaning. Philosophically, that's the best way to solve a contradiction. If one of the sides of the contradiction has no meaning, there can't be a contradiction. Right? There can be no contradiction between gobbledygook and free will, because gobbledygook is a word with no meaning. So the Rambam, by saying that when we say God is omniscient and is all-knowing and knows everything, we don't really mean anything that we can possibly understand. Of course, we know that God is perfect, and we know that God is one. But we can't possibly use any words to describe that. Then he solved the contradiction. There's no contradiction between free will and something that doesn't mean anything. Of course, this might not satisfy all of us, because it's a philosophical answer and not a common-sense answer. But the Rama may have felt, A, that as a valid philosophical answer, it's worth mentioning, and B, perhaps the Rama felt that it was always worth reinforcing the idea that we can't use any words, human words, we can use words to describe God, at least in those cases where we have permission from Chazal to do so, but they don't really mean 
what we think they mean when we talk about God, because we can't really describe or understand God. Perhaps the Rama thought this message was so important that it's worth reinforcing it in the context of his discussion of free will. In any case, many people would still be satisfied, unsatisfied rather, by the Rama's second answer, because although it's philosophically valid, it does leave us a bit confused, as the Ravid points out, and we don't really feel like we understand the issue. We just, I guess, take the Rambam's word for it that we can't possibly understand the nature of God, so we should move on to other things. But what if we want a more intuitively satisfying, perhaps a common-sense answer to this problem? So we move on to a number of Jewish philosophers, including Rav Sadjigon in the fourth chapter of his Emunot Deyot, who gives a very simple and satisfying answer to this contradiction. If God knows everything before we do it, then how can we have free will? So I will paraphrase her side you going a bit. Um, but he points out that this question is based on a mistake. We are used to the way human beings work. And in the human world, things in the past cause things to happen in the future. In all of our human world, causation only works in one direction. Things that happen earlier cause things to happen later. Things that happen later never go back in time and cause things to happen earlier. That would be against all the rules of physics. Science fiction deals with this all the time. Time travel, etc. But that's science fiction. Real science and in real life, we know that what happened yesterday causes things today. What happens today causes things tomorrow. What happened tomorrow can never cause things to happen yesterday. However, the uh, Ravid says, that's true for us human beings. But God transcends the limits of the regular workings of time. God transcends this limitation. Therefore, very simply, for us, we can never imagine doing something tomorrow that will cause something to happen yesterday. But for God, perhaps something done tomorrow can cause something to happen yesterday. Because God is beyond time. And therefore, he says quite simply, yes, God knew yesterday that, take an example, God knew yesterday that I would give tzedakah, I would give charity tomorrow. But, God's knowledge yesterday didn't cause me to give tzedakah tomorrow. My giving tzedakah tomorrow caused God to know about it yesterday, or perhaps more precisely, at the beginning of time. Sounds a little weird to us. The fact that I will give tzedakah tomorrow caused God to know that I'll give tzedakah millions and billions of years ago. But, for God, that makes perfect sense. So he says, yes, God always knew that I would give tzedakah tomorrow. But that doesn't take away my free will. That's a result of my free will. Because I will give tzedakah tomorrow, God always knew that I would do so. And if I would change my mind and decide not to give tzedakah tomorrow, then God would have always known that I wasn't going to do so. Therefore, he says, it, yes, God knew in advance what would happen, but in a paradoxical way that we can't properly assimilate into the way we're used to thinking about the world, God's knowledge that I would give tzedakah didn't make me give tzedakah. My giving tzedakah made, as it were, God know millions and millions of years ago that I would do so. 
Therefore, divine omniscience is no contradiction to free will, and we don't have to ask the question, well, if God always knew I would do it, then I, how can I not do it? The answer is, sure, I cannot do it. And then God will have always known that I would not do it. This is probably the simplest and most satisfying answer to this difficult conundrum. To review what we have discussed today, we began by mentioning the argument in many periods of Jewish history as to whether human beings have free will in choosing to do good or evil or not. The four reasons why most Jews, the vast, vast majority of Jewish philosophers assume we do have free will. A, our experience. B, divine reward and punishment and divine justice. C, the Torah's commandments and encouragements to do the right thing. And D, Chazal in Masechet Brachot to tell us that everything is in the hands of heaven except for our obeying the commands of heaven. We mentioned three potential objections, problems with the doctrine of free will. One, from scientific laws of causation, which we will not uh, deal with at great length. Two, from divine omnipotence, the fact that God runs the world, which most Jewish philosophers answered quite handily, that God runs the world by delegating that power to us. And a very fascinating objection from divine omniscience, if God knows what we will do, then don't we have to do it? And we mentioned three answers. The Ralbag said God doesn't know what we will do, and as a matter of fact, doesn't bother himself with knowledge of particular instances of what exactly happens and confines himself to eternal truths and laws. A, an answer that does not sit well with the mainstream religious worldview. Second answer in the name of the Rambam, that God's knowledge does not mean what we mean by the human word knowledge. It means something else which is inscrutable. And we don't actually know what we mean when we use these words. And we, the phrase God's knowledge has no meaning that we can possibly fathom. And therefore, we cannot ask any questions or contradictions based on God's knowledge. A philosophically satisfying answer. But perhaps not uh, as intuitively satisfying. And thirdly, Rav Sadigo and many others answer that, yes, God knew yesterday what I'll do tomorrow, but God's knowledge yesterday doesn't make me do it tomorrow. My doing it tomorrow made God know it yesterday, because God always knows the truth, and if the truth is that I did it, that I choose to do good or evil, then that makes God know what I chose to do. And even though it's a little funny that what I do tomorrow makes God already know it yesterday, it's not the direction we're used to thinking of when we think of cause and effect, but for God who transcends time, that's no problem whatsoever, and therefore, and therefore, God's foreknowledge, God's knowledge before we make our choice does not cause us to choose, rather, our choice caused retroactively God to know that choice in advance, as it were. In next week's year, we'll move on to the other side of the debate, 
and discuss those Jewish philosophers who held the opinion that, in fact, we do not have free will to choose between good and evil, and examine some of the implications of that minority opinion, and how exactly they deal with all the various philosophical and textual proofs that were brought from Torah Shebechtav and Torah Shebaal Peh to prove that we do have free will.